We have come to this beautiful garden, known now as the Garden Tomb. It is a garden, both in the sense of flowers, as you see, but also of trees, olive trees, vines, and the very sort of vegetation that would have been here 2,000 years ago. This is the most evocative place in Jerusalem of events in Jesus' life. For it fits in at least five ways with the narrative, whether it is the exact place or not. The tomb, we are told, was hewn out of stone. And so, as you see, it is. And the opening today has been enlarged, but you, you see a solid rock tomb hewn by hand out of limestone. The tomb, we are told, was not far from the place of crucifixion. And there is to the left an area which before the times of stoning for the platform of the Temple Mount were hewn by Herod's workmen. And that also is adjacent only a hundred yards or so from this tomb. It is also called a garden, and garden can apply to a vineyard as well as to a grove of olive trees. And the greater evidence that this was anciently a place of growth and cultivation is the huge cistern, which could hold up to 200,000 gallons of water. And finally, this area is outside the wall, which is a prime requirement, according to the Gospel accounts, as also of Jewish law. Malefactors were put to death not within the city wall, but outside, and usually at a place where persons passing by on a frequently used road would see and would, as in the case of Jesus, wag their heads in contempt. We're here in the month of Nisan by the Hebrew lunar calendar reckoning. That is overlapping the Gregorian calendar month of April. It was spring, for Passover is a spring festival, the season of new life. We're also here in the morning, a lovely, fresh, dawning morning. And that also brings us to the season and time that was of the resurrection. Let's walk now to where we can see from above the opening of the tomb and relive that morning. Remember again that Jesus had been mocked at the hands of a whole battalion, perhaps 600 men, in the king's game 
a scarlet, but Joseph Smith corrects that to a purple robe. Not expensive. Earthquake, lightning, and then darkness had attended his death, and by one calculation, he died, breathed his last, and his last breath was a prayer at 3 p.m. on Friday. And by law, it was essential that he be buried or entombed before the Sabbath. And Sabbath begins on the eve of the Orthodox Passover. Some, again, it's hard to believe, some could be survivors of crucifixion for days. And the last blow to those who lived so long was a final stroke to the legs that broke them and brought death. Preparing a body for burial often was the task of women. Joseph of Arimathea, Orthodox, approved, and a member of the Sanhedrin, and so fully trusted, one can gather, that he could do so without eliciting suspicion that he was a secret believer, had begged and brought the body to his own tomb. Mary and other women had stood nearby but had been denied the privilege either of oiling the body or of enshrouding it, and to this day no other process attends death or attends burial. There is no embalming and usually no coffin. The symbolism of the tomb as a womb, the symbolism of Jesus' double promise that he would break the bands of death, but also in the language of another Greek manuscript, he would reverse the blows of death for all mankind. And of his conversation with Nicodemus, which Nicodemus only vaguely grasped, that one must, to see the kingdom of God, be in some ways born again. His very eyes must overcome the shades or shadows that prevent their clear seeing. But then there must be a rebirth, and that rebirth is the sole access to the glorified kingdom of God. Look now at the sources. The tomb was virginal. Luke tells us that it was a tomb, quote, wherein never man before was laid. It was hewn out of a rock, not pieced together, one whole as the body that begets and delivers is one. It was in similitude of life. The Joseph Smith translation 
extends Jesus' analogy that as the whale's belly held Jonah, so likewise shall the Son of Man be buried in the bowels of the earth. Mark 8 also points out that the whale moved, lived, delivered, and Jonah came to renewed life. A very great stone was rolled away to prepare for the coming forth. And the coming forth was near the place of death. It was the valley of deepest darkness. We quote the English translation of the 23rd Psalm, familiar to everyone, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley, rather than a mound, is apparently what the scriptural accounts teach us of a stoning valley and near or not far from that place is the place of deliverance and renewal. The upheaval that follows Jesus' crucifixion and the earthquake is, according to this King James, a past reality, for it says there had been an earthquake but in the Joseph Smith translation, the quake is associated with the presence of the angels who roll away the stone and then are later seen, one at the head and one at the feet of Jesus. There was a period to continue the symbolism of gestation, for Jesus was within the womb tomb for three days or for a part of three days, for he is crucified and dies on a Friday. He is entombed that evening. Then comes the Shabbat, but perhaps also a second Shabbat in Jewish reckoning before the Sunday on which in the morning he comes forth. It came the resurrection early in the morning. We speak of the morning of the first resurrection. It was his birthday into the new day. Matthew says, as it began to dawn, and also early in the morning. It came with the rising of the sun, light and life and power. Notice, too, there were aids if you will, midwives, the two angels who stood by, stood by the tomb in shining garments, sitting, according to Mark's account, on the stone. We have been taught in modern revelation that angels resurrected Jesus, which is to say that the highest and most inclusive ordinance of all ordinances is and yet will be the resurrection. And not only that, there were others with Christ in his resurrection, for we are told in Matthew that many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose and came forth unto the holy city and appeared unto many. And modern revelation blesses us with the added knowledge of the names of three, three who were here, 
three who were, it says, with Christ in the resurrection, quote, they are the same three who were manifested on the Mount of Transfiguration. That is, Elijah, Moses, and John. And now, let us recall what happened that morning. She, Mary, had walked before dawn while it was yet dark early that Sunday morning. She brought with her the oils of anointing. She brought sweet spices intending to anoint him in death as she had, though chided by Judas, anointed him luxuriantly in life. And Mary brought herself. This is the Mary, remember, who had drawn living power from Christ, who had delivered her from buffetings. She was full of memories of his ministry and the most recent, the raising of Lazarus. Luke says she had been with him quote, through every city and village near her own. And she not only heard him teach, but saw him demonstrate his love. She had absorbed deeply of the mystery and the mastery of his life. And she had been nearby to hear him say from the cross, to the mother, Son, behold thy mother. All four accounts teach us that she, Mary, came to the tomb. She may have come other times with other women, but this time she was alone. There was enough light for her to make out that the large stone had been rolled away, and she is numbed to discover that the tomb is empty. A wave of emotion leading her to say through blinding tears to a person nearby whom she supposes to be the gardener. Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me, and so on. Jesus then spoke only one word, Mary, and instantly she replied, Rabboni, which is to say in the Aramaic, my Lord. In later accounts we read that the disciples were affrighted that they shrank. There is no mention of fear in Mary. Her whole impulse, apparently, was to reach out. For according to the inspired version, Jesus doesn't just say, touch me not. The exact, the exact sentence is, hold me not. 
And that is closest also to the Greek meaning. It can be read two ways, I suggest. It can be read to mean, do not embrace me yet. Or it can read, do not ask that I tarry longer. Do not hold me to this place. But then to Mary was given the all-time most glorious commission. She is to be the first messenger of light and life to the others, to the apostles, to the disciples, to Peter, James, and John. Go to them and say that you have seen me and that I live and that I ascend to your Father and my Father, to your God and my God. Mary fulfilled that errand, and the record is clear they did not believe her. Indeed, some did not believe even after he had manifested himself to them. But the explanation for his touch me not or hold me not is puzzling. For only days after this, he is inviting his apostles to, quote, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. His explanation, I have not yet ascended to my Father who is in heaven. Did Mary understand? Do we? The late B.H. Roberts, analyzing this passage in the light of others, once wrote and then spoke his tribute to his mother on her 80th birthday. He observed that just as woman, namely Eve or Chave in Hebrew, the name for lives, was the first to taste and enter the realm of mortality. So woman, namely this Mary, is the first to witness resurrected and glorified life. And he read this incident to his own mother. I am led by these holy things to esteem thee above all mankind. His own personal belief was that Jesus was saying to Mary, I am reserving my first embrace for the Father. And when I have returned from that, I will be prepared for the embrace of others. His resurrection was the completion of the Meridian Dispensation, and the manifestation of His resurrected and glorified personage with the Father to the modern prophet Joseph Smith was the beginning of this, the final dispensation and the manifestation of Jesus Christ and the Father to all mankind at
the time of his glorious second coming will be the culmination of the whole history of this world. I bear witness that the prophet would say the doctrines of the resurrection and the eternal judgment are necessary to preach among the first principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the principle presupposed in all other principles and the ordinance foreshadowed in all other ordinances. It is the conferral of vitalizing powers through rebirth. It is the peace-bringing power that gives meaning to life itself. And only the resurrection and the encounter of the apostles with him can account for the sudden and remarkable change from confusion, consternation, disbelief, and I believe in addition to the fear that is recorded, guilt, for our own records make it clear that they had often in order to preserve their own lives to deny so that not just Peter who denies knowing him but others deny discipleship they might well have assumed that when he stood in the midst as in Luke 24 instead of saying which he did say peace be unto you he might have said harsh words of judgment and even condemnation. But on that day, they too were in a measure reborn. And on that Easter Sunday evening, Jesus breathed upon his disciples the power of the Holy Spirit and power to forgive sins.